Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We got a beautiful spring day here in Portland. I hope it's the weather's good where you are. A lot in the news, a lot coming up on our program today. And Debbie Hines is going to drop by our legal analyst on the Chauvin trial, which has been ongoing. And Christopher Brown is going to drop by to talk not just about the Chauvin trial, but also about qualified immunity for police and what it is and where it's going and everything that's going on. So that's all the stuff that that is right at the top. I've got a pile of news here to get into, but I wanted to start out with GOP cancel culture. I, I really think that this is, you know, there's, there's this thing called projection, right, in psychology. And projection is when you assume that other people are doing things because you yourself would do them. I laid this rant out over at uh, HartmanReport.com this morning where you can read it for free and with no ads. So let me get this straight. Republicans tried to cancel democracy in Georgia and then they got called out on it. And so now they're trying to cancel Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines. Even Donald Trump got into the act saying, uh, no more Diet Coke, right? <laughs> you believe that? It's like, you know, right. You know, the guy who lied, lied to his wife and lied to the voters and lied about it on his taxes. And lied, yeah, right. Anyhow, according to Fox News, this all has something to do with left-wing cancel culture. You know, the simple reality, again, this is projection. The simple reality is that for 60 years or longer, Republicans have been doing everything they can to cancel everything in America that isn't either white, male, or associated with a gun. I mean, go all the way back to the 1960s, when Lyndon Johnson and Democrats in the House and Senate were trying to get past the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And conservatives were like, oh no, you can't do that. Right? And in fact, in 2013, in the Shelby County case, Republican appointees on the U.S. Supreme Court said, yeah, we'll go ahead and gut the Voting Rights Act. No problem. No more, you know, obviously there's no more racism in America. We just elected a black man as president. But this goes way back. The Republican cancel culture is really grounded in the entire Republican campaign to gut the American middle class. Now, I've laid out in the past for you, and I won't recite it again, all the reasons why the Republicans wanted to gut the middle class, but mostly it had to do with the, quote, social upheaval of the 60s. 
and the early 70s, whether that was uh, the Roe v. Wade decision, whether that was uh, school busing, you know, coming out of the 1954 Brown v. Board decision, uh, whether that was hippies smoking pot and being opposed to the war, whether it was black people demanding equal justice and, and the right to vote. I mean, all of these things were seen by conservatives as the negative outcomes, the women's rights movement, the women's liberation movement, as the negative outcomes of the middle class getting too wealthy. And so they declared war on the middle class in the 70s. And Reagan institutionalized that when he became elected. And so, you know, here's the, this is this long sorted history. For example, if you're old enough, you, you remember in the uh, 60s and 70s, there was this whole thing around the metric system. President Kennedy wanted us to move into the 20th century and, and adopt the metric system like pretty much every other developed country on earth had done. It would standardize science, right? I mean, you know, we've had, I don't recall if that plane crashed or if it was it merely had to land with no fuel. Uh, but that happened a while ago because there was a mix-up between liters and gallons and, you know, filling the plane. I mean, you know, the world is standardized, except for us, right? So Chuck Grassley in 1977 gave this uh, famous speech on the floor of the House. This is when he was a member of the House. He's now a senator. He said, forcing the American people to convert to the metric system goes against our democratic principles. That was back in the day when Republicans actually used the word democratic. But Reagan followed through in 1980. He, we were supposed, you know, we had already signed numerous treaties going all the way back to 1866 about the metric system. And Reagan canceled that as part of his plan to try to undo anything Jack Kennedy had done. Seriously. This was the new dictum for Republican presidents is just erase everything the guy before you did. This is why Reagan took the solar panels off the roof of the White House. That was like, you know, one of his very first official acts. The Republican Party during the Reagan administration was trying to cancel two Supreme Court decisions, Roe v. Wade and Brown v. Board. Brown v. Board, you know, mandated the integration of our schools. Roe v. Wade allowed women to get an abortion nationwide. And so Reagan hired this young, white, rising star lawyer into the Reagan Justice Department and said, figure out a way to get around these decisions. And he wrote this long memo saying, you know, Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln were right. The Supreme Court doesn't have the final say. Congress has the final say. It's right there in the Constitution, Article 3, Section 2. All you have to do is pass a law saying that you are overturning, essentially, these two Supreme Court decisions, and that's it. Well, the Reagan administration ended up not doing that because it was just political dynamite. Plus, they were raising so much money over the idea of being able to end abortion that they couldn't actually do it. Right? They, had to, they had to keep the issue out there because it was a huge fundraiser for them. So John Roberts, who is now the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, who was that lawyer who worked for Ronald Reagan back in the 80s and came up with this idea of how to cancel Brown and Roe, he's still around. They've spent the last 60 years trying to cancel workers' rights to unionize. And now that Joe Biden says, hey, let's build back America better using union labor, the Republicans are like, oh, no, we're going to cancel that. They tried to cancel unemployment benefits. Remember, in the middle of the, of the COVID crisis, this is like June or July of last year, Donald Trump and the Republicans were proposing a budget that would have canceled hundreds of millions of dollars out of unemployment benefits. They'd throw millions of people who were getting unemployment benefits off the rolls. They tried to cancel Social Security. They've been working on that so hard that the guy who is running the Social Security Administration right now, who's a holdover from the Trump administration, slow-walked 
the data over to the Treasury Department so that, you know, a lot of people who are, particularly on Social Security disability, but a lot of people still haven't gotten or just in the last, just in this week are going to get their COVID checks a month late. And meanwhile, you've got right-wingers on radio and TV going, well, I, I proves the Biden administration's incompetent. They don't even know how to get the damn checks out. I mean, they've been trying to cancel our children's future and, and our grandchildren's future by promoting climate change or stopping anything that might do anything about climate change. Why? Because the fossil fuel industry is pouring cash into them. Same thing with guns and the NRA. They've been can't, trying to cancel your right not to be shot. When Reagan was elected governor of, of California in the 1970s, the first thing he did was cancel free education in that state. He became president, and now we've got you know free education, free, college education canceled all across the country. And with Trump and his MAGA followers, his whole MAGA movement, they you know their big effort was cancel democracy. To hell with what happened in the election. We're going to put this strongman dictator Donald Trump in charge, and that'll be the end of that. I'm telling you, this is projection. Now, you watch Fox News and it's, what's the latest left-wing cancel culture outrage? Right. They are assuming that Democrats would do what they have been doing for, geez, most of my lifetime. Anyhow, uh, more of the news of the day in your calls in just a moment. This is the Tom Hartman Program. There is news on the COVID front. There's news on the statehood front. There's a, I've got a bunch of stuff to share with you. Stick around. Scott, listening on X-Ray FM in Portland. Hey, Scott, what's up? Hey, thanks, Tom. Uh, I was going to call you last week, but I didn't get through a real quick one that was just about how the energy of the energy that we use in this country to generate electricity, only 35 percent of it actually becomes usable electricity due to transmission and generational losses. So going back to your point that you were making briefly, that Jimmy Carter was right. We need solar panels on the roofs of our houses and we don't need to uh, rely on an electric grid moving forward. But uh, yeah, if I can, Scott, before you continue. I had not seen that 35% stat. Uh, what I had seen, and I wrote about it in Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, is that the power line losses across the United States, just the power line losses, the electricity lost because we have central tra- uh, creation of power and then we transmit it over long distances to get it to people, was a total of 17% of all the electricity produced in the United States. Is the balance to get up to 35%, the other one, what would that be, like 13% or something? No, whatever it would be, 18%. Is that because you know, we're making heat and then converting that heat into electricity. Is that the, the inherent inefficiency of, of, you know, boiling water systems, whether they're coal-fired or whether they're nuclear? Yes. Uh, this comes out of an article from uh, UT Texas, uh, Austin, and it, it's including generational inefficiencies as well as transmission right. losses. But, uh, right. yeah, so it's, you know, when okay. they say, oh, well, uh, nuclear power is a bridge to the future. No, that's not it either. <laughs> yeah. My point was uh, I, I saw that the New York Times came out with a story about how the, the last president, I won't say his name, was double dipping with the people getting their donations where they wouldn't check the box and they would have mm-hmm. the repeat donations. And I was going to say uh, that listeners to your show know this because you brought this up you know, about a month or so ago. And I, I was, I was going to say it was 
first uh, actually broken on your show by the crack investigative team of Flintstone and Rubble. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Fred Flintstone kept getting these emails from Donald That's Trump right. and the little boxes were, you know, yes, uh, you know, uh, double my donation and make it every single week. And, and they were pre-checked and repeatedly. I mean, you know, I was getting, like I said, five, six, seven of these solicitations a day and at least two or three times a week for several months, I, I would point this out on the air and go, where's the outrage? When are the Republicans going to figure out that Donald Trump is running a con on them? And it was just crickets until yesterday, yeah, the New yeah. York Times finally figured it out. Yeah, well, it's hit the fan that one, one of the guys, a pensioner that clicked a yes for a $500 donation, and they took another one the following day and then uh, several more for the next coming weeks. And he's saddled with like a $3,500 bill and uh they were gonna right. get they were supposedly they gave some of it back it's like a hundred million they said they gave back and jason miller his little melon-headed uh talker uh said uh, uh oh that's only one percent it was only one percent of the donations that we did that and it's like oh really a hundred million you're giving back that would mean you took in ten billion dollars if that was one percent so right. i you know and Don Jr. just bought a new house in Florida and you know it's just it's, it's, yeah for what nine million bucks Yes, I mean, I these guys have been running a huge grift, and there's hundreds of millions of dollars missing from the inaugural fund through the re-election campaign. It's just gone. Nobody knows where it went. That's it. Well, yeah. There you go. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening. See, if only they'd listened to us, they, you know, we could have prevented all this disaster. We'll be right back. stuff in the news here. I just want to pop through a few things and then we can then we can talk about what's going on. The cable companies, Joe Biden is proposing $100 billion for broadband around the country that will not be run by private for-profit corporations who will snoop on you and sell your data like happens right now for most of us, but instead will be run like Chattanooga, Tennessee, where the city provides the broadband doesn't snoop on you and gives you better quality, faster speeds at a much, much lower price because they don't have to, I mean, you know, just, just ask yourself, you know, how did Comcast, this little regional cable company and internet service provider down in Florida, how did they end up like owning NBC? Well, it's very, very profitable to be an internet service provider in a cable company. So anyhow, the cable industry is going nuts or the internet service providers. They've hired this guy, Michael Powell, who used to be the head of the FCC during George W. Bush's administration. Remember him? Yeah, he was the Republican chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. And this is what he said. The idea that the private sector and profit incentives are intrinsically unsuited to do the job. That, that's the uh, phrase that was used by one of the uh, people on TV advocating for Joe Biden's plan, you know, if you want the, the largest number of people to have the fastest internet service possible, you don't want private companies providing it because they're just going to be trying to, you know, skim money off the top to give to their stockholders and their CEOs and, and all, and, and they're going to sell your information. So anyhow, he says, the idea of the private sector and profit incentives are intrinsically unsuited to do the job is surprisingly Soviet. Uh, right. 
And then uh, a Biden official said, if, if we're going to put billions of public dollars behind this effort, we need to do it in a way that sets it up for decades to come. Amen. Broadband is infrastructure. Meanwhile, the war on democracy continues. Texas is considering a bill very much like Georgia's uh, similar legislation. Over 300 pieces of similar legislation have been introduced in over 47 states. And now corporate America is saying, we're not going to support these guys who hate America, right? Over the Associated Press News, AP News, Brian Sladisco writing the headline kind of says it all. Corporations gave over $50 million to voting restriction backers. AT&T was one of the most prolific. They gave 800 grand since 2015 to authors of these proposed restrictions. Other top donors during the same period include Comcast, Philip Morris USA, United Health Group, Walmart, Verizon, General Motors, and Pfizer. These donations, these $50 million in donations, quote, helped cement Republican control in state houses. Right. So when are America's corporations going to get their act together? In the COVID area, I did want to bring this to your attention. The British variant of COVID, which is far more contagious, is ripping through Michigan, France, and Germany right now, and is starting to spread to other parts of Europe, and is also starting to spread to other parts of the United States. It's not only more contagious, it's easier to catch. You need a lot less virus and a lot less exposure. So six feet may not be enough. What we thought was good ventilation might not be enough. But it's also more deadly and against younger people. So now we've got 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds who are getting sick and ending up in the hospital being intubated and dying, as opposed to just 70 and 80-year-olds. Now, part of the reason why 70 and 80-year-olds are not dying at the rates that they were is because they're getting vaccinated really fast. But, you know, we're still only... About one-fifth of Americans have had at least their first vaccine. But there's this new mutation. It's called EEK. It's the E484K mutation. Uh, the scientists call it EEK. And, in to- and it's another variation. It's, it's a brand-new brand new mutation. And it's now spreading through Japan. 10 out of 14 people who tested positive at the uh, Tokyo Medical uh, Hospital in March uh, had that variation. None of them yet have the British variation. So this is mutating all over the world, which is not a good thing. And in the face of this and this massive health crisis that's coming with it, legislators in Florida who are looking at a $2 billion shortfall this year in their budget have been offered by the federal government, Joe Biden and the federal government saying, you know, if you just expand Medicaid in your state, make it available to everybody, 90% of the money comes from us, we will wipe out your budget deficit. And they're saying, no, no, we don't want to do that. Instead, we're going to cut $251.2 million out of Medicaid reimbursements for hospitals. We're going to cut $77 million out of the critical care fund for low-income people for health care. And we're going to reduce by $22 million the amount of money that Medicaid pays for over-the-counter drugs. Uh, Right. I think, I don't know if you saw the thing around 60 Minutes over the weekend about DeSantis and his whole pay-for-play, you get the vaccine thing, but, you know, it's like, hey, if you're rich in Florida, you're in Fat City. Otherwise, nah. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR 
into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by N.B. Turner. It's titled, Is China an Imperialist Country? And it's from a relatively Marxist point of view. I think you'll find it fascinating. This is from the introduction. It has long been known and understood that the entire world has been under the control of capitalist imperialism. For a time, a section of this world broke from it, beginning with the victory of socialism in Russia and continuing through the Chinese Revolution, constituting a socialist world. Yet in time, the socialist countries, through internal class struggles in politics and economics, were seized by capitalist conciliators and advocates, and then by capitalists themselves, who were largely within the ruling communist parties themselves. There are others who assert that the U.S. is not so omnipotent, and that it is in decline and maybe failing, but that the U.S. and its close allies constitute the only imperialism that matters, and that if all its detractors, victims, opponents, and its imperialist rivals band together, liberation will truly be achieved with the demise of U.S. imperialism. This view also holds that whenever big powers like China or Russia rise in opposition to the U.S., they deserve the support and applause from progressive and revolutionary forces. Holding this view are a variety of forces who cling to the notion that the Cold War division of the world is still extant, and that popular protests in recent years from Libya to Syria, Ukraine and Venezuela, as well as Brazil and Turkey, Iran, even inside Western China, are all examples of U.S. meddling and desperate interference. This view holds that without such U.S. manipulation and interference and disruption, the people would, by and large, be happy or passive. This is by any measure an amazing claim, denying the existence of class contradictions and struggles within each of these countries and making it appear that the conspiratorial powers of the U.S. to manipulate events are unparalleled in reach and effectiveness. In practical political terms, this view distorts the basic reality that many regimes, bourgeois states that usually evoke one ethnic or religious or nationalist section of the people over others, aim to repress the sharpening class struggle and broad discontent and rebellion. The book N.B. Turner's Is China an Imperialist Country? check in with Debbie Hines, our legal analyst and a former trial lawyer, former assistant attorney general for the state of Maryland, former prosecutor, imdebbiehines.com, her website and her Twitter handle. Debbie, welcome back. So what's the latest on the Chauvin trial and where do you think it's going today? I know that they've been getting testimony from the ER physician. I caught that before I went on the air. What's up? 
Okay, so Tom, actually, right now, the most, well, one of the most exciting testimonies to date is occurring because it's with the uh, Minneapolis police chief. He was pretty much just going over his credentials and how he got into the force and, you know, just kind of sort of more foundational stuff. But this is the officer, mm-hmm. the, the chief who fired Chauvin right away because it was so egregious what happened. But before him, we had the doctor at the hospital, Dr. Langenfelder, I think his name was, and he was the young attending resident who was the one that took Mr. Floyd, now we know his body, into the hospital after the EMT and the um, ambulance took him there. kind of have to look at some of my notes because he was kind of very technical as opposed to just speaking directly in what we call layman's terms so everybody can understand what he's talking about in terms of the medical jargon. So I'm hoping the jurors took notes as well. But he said it was highly unlikely that Mr. Floyd died as a result of a heart attack which is what the defense is trying to claim, and that he said it was no fluid around the heart. They got really technical as to what you look at to tell if an individual has succumbed due to a heart attack. And that he did say that it was more or less likely that it was his cause of death was due to oxygen deficiency, the very thing that Mr. Floyd was screaming out for more than 30 times, that he couldn't breathe. And he also addressed the defense's uh, position that Mr. Floyd could have died from excited delirium, which has to do with the drugs in his system. And he, you know, he refuted that theory as well, that there was nothing there to indicate it. But it's interesting on the excited delirium, even though he disputed that theory, that's one of the things that Chauvin said when he was speaking to his lieutenant, or that the lieutenant said that Chauvin said that, oh, you know, George Floyd was just acting crazy. Meanwhile, we all know that that's not true from the video, but I think that's what they're trying to allude to there. So he was strong in the sense that he did say that Mr. Floyd definitely had an oxygen deficiency, and that was the likely cause of his death. The cross-examination really didn't do too much with him. They discussed the fact that George Floyd did have two times more the normal amount of carbon dioxide in his system and that a healthy individual would have had a significant amount less. So I'm sure that once they get to their meaning the defense position, they're going to actually point to some type of respiratory problem that they believe that George Floyd had. So all in all, I mean, Dr. Langefeld, he came on, he did what he had to do. He's a young resident at the time. So even though he's, you know, he's a doctor, there's no doubt about that, but he still was a younger, you know, physician. So I think they're just trying with him to just lay the foundation of what happened. Mr. Floyd, you know, we know what happened at the scene. He was taken in the ambulance and then the ambulance took him to the hospital. So they're just trying to pretty much lay that foundation. But there's really, you know, most of what's going to happen is going to come up with the chief of police as well as with the other medical doctors, because actually the case is primarily probably going to rest on causation as to what was the cause of death, and that will be due to whatever the medical doctors and the actual medical examiner testifies about, which is yet to come. Right. So my understanding of what I caught this morning, too, was that had he been able to breathe normally, he wouldn't have had high levels of carbon dioxide in his bloodstream, number one. So that kind of validates his I can't breathe. And number two, if he had been high on drugs and was having a drug freak out, which is what Chauvin had told a bystander immediately after the case, as I recall, he probably would have been sweaty because that's 
consistent yes. with drug delirium, and and he wasn't sweaty. You know, so there, exactly. were, there were no symptoms of any of the stuff that basically Officer Chauvin and his buddies were claiming were the justification for dragging. Again, we have to remember they dragged him out of the car after he was already restrained, handcuffed, and locked in the back of a police car. They dragged him out, put him on the street, and killed him. Exactly. And and that, you know, we may never know what that's about because Chauvin didn't testify, but as to why they didn't get him back in the car, he was already handcuffed and in. And even though Mr. Floyd was saying that he was talking a little bit claustrophobic, when have the police ever been concerned about someone being claustrophobic when they put him in a paddy wagon or in this case, put him in the back of a car? So that just, yeah. you know. I just think that it is what it is, and we're going to see if the jury can believe everything that the prosecution has set forth. But again, here's an interesting thing, Tom. I had thought that Courtney Ross, who was Mr. Floyd's girlfriend, was the most compelling testimony, at least I think so far. And what she did was she's known George Floyd ever since, uh, I think it was August of 2017. And what she did was she brought life to George Floyd. I mean, you know, up to this time, we haven't really heard anything about him. But she describes him honestly as just the person that I think anyone would love to have as their friend. And she referred to him as a fun adventure. She met him when he was working at the Salvation Army and she was visiting the father of her child and she was a little down and he was a stranger to her and he just came over and asked her could I pray with you are you okay and she said just someone not knowing her and having that much empathy for her and so they started a relationship and she said that um, he loved to I mean he was in great physical shape he lifted weights every day he loved to bike do a lot of different sports they ate out at restaurants but she did describe the difficult side and that was a side that both of them struggled with opioid addiction. And it was from previous injuries that they had. Mr. Floyd was from a back injury, and he started out obviously on prescription opioids. And as many people know, and perhaps even many people on the jury know someone who suffers from opioid addiction, and that he tried many times to deal with it. And there was off of drugs and opioids for a while. But, you know, as she indicated, which most people who have experienced anyone with the circumstance have read about it, it's a lifelong struggle. It's not a struggle that you end today and you know and say it's over and done with so I mean she gave really life to him she talked about how he was a wonderful father that he loved his two girls dearly and that he was a mama's boy which you know played into his love of his mother who he had just lost two years before his death so she just really painted the picture of Mr. Floyd that you know we haven't seen before and then they had the paramedic one after her testimony and her cross-examination was completed. And the paramedic said that when he arrived at the scene that, you know, Mr. Floyd appeared as everyone saw him on the video to not be in any struggle. And he had at that time to even ask Chauvin to get off of Mr. Floyd's neck, even though there was no visible struggle or no visible anything. And it was apparent, even though they tried everything that they could, removed him from the scene, took Mr. Floyd to the hospital. As we now know, he wasn't able to be revived. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me, Debbie, was when his girlfriend, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on her name. You had her name just a moment ago. Courtney Ross. Courtney, right. When she said that he called her mama, and it suddenly hit me that at, toward the end, in some of his last words, he called out for mama. And it had been reported up to that point that he was calling for his mother. 
and it hit me that maybe he was calling for his girlfriend, for his, his best friend, his companion. And that okay, just, let me clarify that, just, that. No, no, no. Let me clarify that for you, Tom, and anyone listening. Okay, okay. He was very strongly loved his mother. And in, mm. I won't say in all black circles, but I have friends that call me mama. It's a slang. I'm not a mother. Uh-huh. It is a slang that is off, that is sometimes used. I have a friend, and that's how when I pick up the phone, he's like, hey, mama, how you doing? Right. So... There's no oh, doubt okay. in my mind that from what she said, he was calling out for his mother. But it doesn't matter yeah. for purposes of this jury whether it was his mother or he was calling out for her. But I just want to let it be known that is a slang sure. that I've heard referred to me, Thank and you. I am no one's mother. Yeah, okay. Thank you, Debbie. <laughs> I appreciate that. You know, every day gets better and better in terms of how I view the prosecution's case. I mean, earlier we had all of the eyewitnesses and we had Floyd's girlfriend, and those are the emotional testimonies. But we had Lieutenant Zimmerman, and Lieutenant Zimmerman is the oldest, the most senior police officer in the entire Minneapolis Police Department. And so he testified Hmm. about what's reasonable use of force and what a duty of a police officer has to a suspect. And, you know, it was just very interesting. It wasn't anything that was emotional. He's just going through the nuts and bolts of this is how it works. And he says, obviously, these different threats that you can have by a suspect can change over time. But at the end of the day, putting a knee on someone's neck in the prone position while they're handcuffed is, in his words, absolutely unacceptable. They're not trained that way, and they asked him, well, why is that? He said, because under those circumstances, a person can't breathe. It's deadly force. It can kill a person, which is exactly what happened to Mr. Floyd. So, I mean, he and he was, you know, just very methodically going through what his training has been. But it's not a matter of what he knows to be unreasonable force, because what he said is that, Each and every officer, including someone like him, who's almost been a police officer for four decades now, every single year, every Minneapolis police officer has that training because it is so important within the culture of the police department what they should and should not do. So, I mean, he was just really just straightforward, and there really wasn't that much. I felt that the defense could do with that. What what are you going to be able to do? Because the defense seems to want to Harper and some other things. But the second part, in terms of duty of care, which is what is the duty that the officer has to a suspect, regardless of what he's doing, and he said the officers have a duty to protect and to be responsible for the safety and the well-being of someone who's in custody. And we clearly saw that that didn't happen, because in addition to the deadly use of force, Chauvin still had his knee on George Floyd's neck, even when the paramedics came, never tried to render him aid. So, uh, Debbie, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I've never been through a criminal trial. I've never been on a jury on a criminal trial. But I've watched a lot of Perry Mason and things like that over the years. (laughs) Is this how this works, that first the prosecution presents their case and they call their witnesses who can be cross-examined by the defense, and then the defense will present their case, they will call their witnesses who can be cross-examined by the prosecution, and then you have closing arguments. Am I correct about that as a general template? 
Yeah, as a general proposition, I mean, in this case, the the defense will call witnesses. They don't have to. The defense is never obligated to call witnesses. In this case, I believe Mm -hmm. they obviously will. But they're not obligated Mm -hmm. in any case to call witnesses. And the defendant has an absolute right to remain silent and not take the stand. Sure. But at this point in time, the defense has not begun really their defense. All they've been doing is trying to poke holes in the prosecution, right? So when does that begin? Right. And what do you expect the strategy will be? Okay, so we don't really know when it's going to begin. What we do know is that the prosecution is a little ahead of schedule. And the reason why I think we're not knowing when it is, the judge is really being very cautious about not trying to let really the media know who's up next and how many witnesses for the particular day just to keep everything you know as secure as possible so the trial was slated to take several weeks so at least it'll probably take potentially another two weeks and the defense case is really i believe totally on the autopsy report i really don't feel there's that much they can do with the police officers use of reasonable force although Here's how it works. I'm sure they'll be able to find some witness somewhere that could say, given the circumstances, Chauvin's use of force was reasonable. But I think that what they're going to harp most at is on the autopsy report. And that's why it was very important that we're starting to see witnesses who are saying that the position that Mr. Floyd was in caused him to have lack of breathing, as it would for anyone. Because there are people, and I always call them naysayers, there are people, and they could be on the jury, who seem to be a little confused about how the body works and think that just because Mr. Floyd could say, I can't breathe 30 times, they seem to think that means he had no problem breathing. And that's not really how it works. But that goes to what I think that the defense is going to try to get that point across just to get, remember, they only need to get one juror to believe them, Mm. to believe their side Mm. and to cause a mistrial because all 12 of the jurors have to reach a unanimous verdict. So the defense's strategy really is to try to get one person to go along with what we say, that one person. They already have doubts about everything and wonder why didn't Floyd obey, why he didn't do this. That's all they need to do is just to harp on that one person to get them to understand that, well, it could be drugs. It could have been everything else that could have caused him other than a knee on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. And then, you know, when we watched the whole nine and a half minute video, there was another cop who was standing there yelling at George Floyd, well, why don't you just get up? You know, while Chauvin and two other guys were sitting on his back and his legs. What's going to happen to that guy? I mean, he seems as culpable as as any of them. I mean, it wasn't his knee, but he was right there egging him on. So the other three officers, their trials are scheduled for August. So, you know, they'll have their day in court as well. But the other thing that was interesting, once you mentioned that, that there was an officer that was heard, I believe it's on the body cam tape, at one point just said, just leave him, meaning Mr. Floyd. So there is someone there that just wanted to leave him, but they still continued kneeling on him, putting all the pressure on him, and Chauvin having his knee on his neck for that entire time. So there might have been a good guy cop there, or at least a small attempt? I don't attempt. think so. I, I, it's just a matter. Well, I won't say he's a good guy, as he was someone who was yeah. trying to say, I think it's enough. Yeah, I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. Debbie Hines, I am DebbieHines.com, and I am Debbie Hines on Twitter. Debbie, thanks so much. It's great talking with you. I appreciate you, these Tom. reports. Always great, great talking with you. Yeah, thank you. We'll be right back. We're going to check in with Christopher Brown 
about qualified immunity for the police right after this. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Christopher Brown is on the line with us, the principal attorney with the Brown Firm, PLLC. Brownfirmplc.com is the website, and you can tweet uh, Christopher Brown, Attorney Brown, at A-T-T-Y-C Brown. Attorney Brown, Christopher Brown, welcome to the program. Please tell us, what is qualified immunity? I understand New York ended it for police last week. Uh, what? Uh, give us the details. Tom, how are you? It is such a pleasure to be I'm on great. your show. Thank as you so much for joining of, us. Yeah, as a matter of full disclosure, I saw you on Rising with Crystal and Sager a couple months ago, and you were talking oh, yeah. about your book, The History of the American Oligarchy. And I, yeah. that was one of those rare occasions where after the show, I went and bought your book right after I saw it. So fabulous. Well, thank uh, you. Huge fan. Very, very, okay. excited, very excited to be on your show. So qualified thank you, immunity. Let's start off by saying that qualified immunity is going to go down as one of the, I think, most regrettable actions by the United States Supreme Court. So contextually, let's talk about this. In 1864, the Civil Rights Act was passed. In 1971, what is referred to as the Ku Klux Plan Act was passed, 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. It was passed because of commingling between Ku Klux Klan members and state actors terrorizing African Americans to protect them from the actions of people acting under the color of the state, authority of the state. This was 1871, uh, right? 1871. Sorry, yes, yeah. Right. Uh, seven years after the Civil Rights Act, so 1871. Yeah. Not much happened with it for about a hundred years. And then in 1967, the United States Supreme Court decided, you know, we know you wrote this statute that said you could sue state actors, and, but you must have meant that there was going to be some level of immunity for these actors. So we're going to impose a doctrine called qualified immunity. And what qualified immunity does is it changes the game when you're suing police officers. Now, understand, it's for suing any state actor. So an example I like to use is this. If a teacher locked a student in a classroom because they were in trouble and they had to stay after class for detention and forgot the student was there and left them overnight, the student's family would sue, right? That teacher would be held to a certain standard, maybe entitled to qualified immunity. Uh, it wasn't a clearly established right. 
what's always puzzled me about qualified immunity is there is zero consideration given to the fact that these officers are trained professionals. So they're, they're treated like kids, like 12-year-olds. Uh, if we went through some examples of where qualified immunity was granted because the right wasn't clearly established, we're talking about um, uh, an officer who was warned that a suspect was doused in gasoline, but nonetheless chased the suspect and the suspect caught on fire. Well, granted qualified immunity oh. because it wasn't clearly established. Uh, an officer chasing a suspect for jaywalking. Well, that had never happened before, so that right wasn't clearly established. Uh, you know, shooting a woman several times, standing in her, her yard, holding a knife, and doing nothing illegal. Uh, that had never happened before because her roommate was next to her and the officer was concerned, as he claimed, she may, uh, the officer, she may stab her, her roommate. Uh, so it's become a shield used by officers to uh, protect them from anything but the most egregious, willful, and wanton uh, sort of completely lack of any sense of reasonableness. Uh, beyond that, they use this and they get off the hook time and time again. Thank you, Christopher Brown. I did not know this. I, I did not know that this came out of a Supreme Court decision, that this was court-made law as opposed to, or judge-made law as opposed to legislature-made law. I had assumed that there was a, a law that identified qualified immunity. And in fact, I had always believed that it only applied to police, that firefighters and paramedics did not have qualified immunity. It sounds to me like any uh, government employee of any kind of any level of government has a certain level of qualified immunity. Um, uh, you know, just confirm that for me. And how does that how is that different from sovereign immunity? That is the you know, the our inability to, for example, sue a legislator for doing something, um, you know, uh, stupid or, or sue the president for doing something that causes the death of people. You know, Trump's uh, uh, immigration policies, putting children in cages and seven of them died. He, my understanding is he can't can't be sued for that because he's a so he was acting on behalf of the state as the sovereign. Well, that's what the Supreme Court was trying to do in Pearson v. Ray in, in, in 1967. Uh, they were essentially saying the legislature didn't say anything about immunity in the statute, uh, but, you know, we need to balance this with the idea of sovereign immunity. So we're going to put in this qualified immunity, kind of a middle ground. So sovereign mm. immunity is a beautiful thing. You can't sue the king, right? Uh, and that's right. been passed down for, for, for centuries. Uh, but immunity can be waived. And you can sue a police officer who crashes into your car. You can sue a police officer if he, you know, if he, you know, there's certain things where states and municipalities waive immunity, uh, allow you to sue for negligence and, and things of that nature. The difference is when you're suing a police officer for hitting your car, just in a regular old car accident, it's a normal, it's a negligent standard, and the jury's going to decide uh, whether it's more likely than not that he was at fault. When you get to uh, an excessive force claim under 42 U.S.C. 1983, the qualified immunity kicks in when you're claiming that they've deprived you of some constitutional right. And that's mm. when all of a sudden you have this two-pronged test. One, was the action a deprivation of the individual's constitutional right? And two, was that right clearly established at the time it took place? And I don't inherently have a problem with that, Tom. I can work with qualified immunity. The problem comes in where, where the court interprets was the right clearly established. 
do we, and, and where they've interpreted that is by saying, we need to know, was there a previous case that discussed this behavior that put the officer on notice, this would have been unlawful. Now, do we need precedent to tell us you can't tase a jaywalker? Do we need precedent right. to tell us not to tase a man who's dousing gasoline? Do we need precedent to tell us you can't stick a dog on someone who's already surrendered and put their hands up? Uh, and this is the problem. Uh, they look at the case yeah. law and they say, no, we haven't seen a case like that qualified immunity grant. We're talking with Christopher Brown, principal attorney at the Brown Firm PLLC, the uh, the website brownfirmplc.com and the Twitter handle Brown. Attorney Brown, what do we do about this. It seems like it's being wildly and widely abused. That's an understatement. A lot of things are happening. States are removing qualified immunity as a defense to their state law claims. Uh, there's a problem with that, though. Like Maryland, there's no qualified immunity. Colorado passed it last year, got rid of qualified immunity. New York was the first municipality to get rid of qualified immunity, uh, which is what we're talking about. Although you have 54 civic organizations writing letters to the state legislature saying, this is nowhere near enough. Just because you're going to tag on this qualified immunity defense that's getting knocked out doesn't do anything to address the funding issues, the bloated funding, the fact that the police are still involved in mental health crises, et cetera. Unless it's a step in the right direction. What can we do? Uh, the Supreme Court's not going to do it. It's not going to happen anytime soon. We need to get our Congress and the Senate to get rid of the defense qualified immunity. And they need to basically come out and blatantly say, we didn't put it in the statute when we wrote the statute, and we don't want it in there imposed by the court. And that's exactly what happened. The court wrote this immunity doctrine into the statute to protect police officers. Right. So it's it's going to take a legislative solution, bottom line. I believe so. Yeah. Christopher sure. Brown, principal attorney at the Brown Firm, PLLC, brownfirmplc.com, A-T-T-Y-C Brown is the Twitter handle, is uh, Christopher's Twitter handle. Christopher Brown, thank you so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you. Thank you for teaching me something. Tom, thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Anytime. Uh, love to have you back. Hi, for our book club today, we're reading from Bernie Sanders' book, Where We Go From Here, Two Years in the Resistance. This is from the introduction. During my campaign for president in 2016, I stated over and over again that the future of our country was dependent upon our willingness to make a political revolution. I stress the real change never occurs from the top down. It always happens from the bottom up. No real change in American history, not the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the women's movement the gay rights movement, the environmental movement, or any other movement for social justice has ever succeeded without grassroots activism, without millions of people engaged in the struggle for justice. That's what I said when I ran for president. That's what I believe now. That's what I've been working to accomplish over the last several years. At a time of massive and growing income and wealth inequality, as our nation moves closer and closer to an oligarchic form of society, we need an unprecedented grassroots political movement to stand up to the greed of the billionaire class and the politicians they own. And the good news is we're making progress. People in every region of our country are standing up and fighting back against the most dishonest and reactionary president in the history of the republic. In state after state, they're also taking on establishment politicians who are more concerned about protecting their wealthy campaign contributors than they are with the needs of the middle class and the working people they're supposed to represent. We're making progress when millions of people in every state in the country take to the streets for the Women's March in opposition to Trump's reactionary agenda. We're making progress when an unprecedented grassroots movement 
elects a young African-American as mayor of Birmingham, Alabama. We're making progress when tens of thousands of Americans turn out at rallies and town hall meetings to successfully oppose the Republican effort to throw 32 million people off health insurance. We're making progress when governors and local officials announce in response to student demands tuition-free public colleges and universities. We're making progress when over the past two years, hundreds of first-time candidates of every conceivable background run for school boards, city council, state legislature, and Congress, and many of them win. The good news is that the American people are far more united than the media would like us to believe. They get it. They know that over the past 40 years, despite a huge increase in worker productivity, the middle class has continued to shrink while the very rich have become very much richer. They know that for the first time in the modern history of the United States, our kids will likely have a lower living standard than us. The bad news is that instead of going forward together, demagogues like Trump win elections by dividing us. The bad news is that too many of us are getting angry at the wrong people. It was not an immigrant picking strawberries at $8 an hour who destroyed the economy in 2008. It was the greed and illegal behavior of Wall Street. It was not transgender people who threw millions of workers out on the street as factories were shut down all across the country. It was profitable multinational corporations in search of cheap labor abroad. Our job for the sake of our kids and grandchildren is to bring our people together around a progressive agenda. Are the majority of people in our country deeply concerned about the grotesque level of income and wealth inequality that we are experiencing? You bet they are. Do they believe that our campaign finance system is corrupt and enables the rich to buy elections? Overwhelmingly they do. Do they want to raise the minimum wage to a living wage and provide pay equity for women? Yes, they do. Do they think that the very rich and large corporations should pay more in taxes so that all of our kids can have free tuition at public universities and colleges? Yep. Do they believe that the United States should join every other major country and guarantee health care as a right? Yes, again. Do they believe climate change is real? you got to be kidding. Are they tired of the United States of America, the wealthiest country in the history of the world, falling apart at the seams with roads, bridges, water systems, wastewater plants, airports, rails, levees, and dams either failing or at risk of failing? Who isn't? Further, a majority of the American people want comprehensive immigration reform and a criminal justice system that is based on justice, not racism or mass incarceration. Today, what the American people want is not what they're getting. In fact, under Republican leadership in the House, Senate, and White House, they are getting exactly the opposite of what they want. The American people want a government that represents all of us. Instead, they're getting a government that represents the interests and extremist ideology of wealthy campaign contributors. They want environmental policies that combat climate change and pollution and that will allow our kids to live on a healthy and habitable planet. Instead, they're getting executive orders and legislation that push more fossil fuel production, more greenhouse gas emissions, and more pollution. They want a foreign policy that prioritizes peacemaking. Instead, they're getting increased military spending and growing hostility to our long-term democratic allies. They want a nation in which all people are treated with dignity and respect and where we continue our decades-long struggle to end discrimination based on race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, and nation of origin. Instead, they have a president who seeks to win political support by appealing to those very deep-seated prejudices. During the last several years, I've worked hard in Washington, but I've also traveled to 32 states in every region of our country. I've seen the beauty, strength, and courage of our people. I've also seen fear and despair. I've talked to people with life-threatening illnesses in West Virginia who worry about what will happen to them or their loved ones if they lose the health insurance that keeps them alive. I've talked to young immigrants, dreamers in Arizona, who are frightened to death about losing their legal status and being deported from the only country they have ever known. 
I talked to a single mom, a young single mom in Nevada, worried about how she can raise her daughter on $10.45 an hour. I talked to retirees and older workers in Kansas who are outraged that as a result of congressional legislation, they could lose up to 60% of the pensions they paid into and were promised as deferred compensation for a lifetime of hard work. Bernie Sanders, where we go from here. Yasha in uh, Imnaha, Oregon. That's a town I'm not familiar with. Hey, Yasha, what's up? <laughs> Imnaha is a little teeny place in the road that uh, I guess the town motto is, where the hell is Imnaha? I'm next door <laughs> to uh, Hell's Canyon, one ridge okay. over. So the, my query is why I am not hearing the progressive and Democratic uh, Party talking more about the what the cost of not uh, pursuing the in- infrastructure repair in the jobs bill, what the uh, mm-hmm. cost of not repairing infrastructure. All oh, yeah. is about, uh, oh, it's going to cost so much. Oh, but, you know, budget, blah, blah, blah. I'm not hearing anything about, well, yes, but if we don't, I want to hear those figures. Yeah, the, 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 the cost sense. of... Uh, Right, the the cost of lost productivity, the the damage to cars from potholes. Although there's probably a whole it's industry. Not only of... that, it's it, what I'm thinking is um, education is a bit critical. Uh, our children mm-hmm. are our future. Uh, we are at, so at risk of infiltration and ter- an attack on our uh, electrical grid, on our communications mm-hmm. grid. We are so far behind the times. Uh, we are yeah, so far behind in uh, broadband access for everyone. There's no access where I live. Yeah, yeah, in considerable detail we'll be getting into that. Yasha, thank you. That's an excellent point. I appreciate the call. Jessica in Chicago. Hey, Jessica, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I just want to say you're amazing. You touch on everything I care about. But um, thank you. that police officer you mentioned, you wonder what was in his past. He put a knee on a 14-year-old kid. And this morning, I took a knee at 8.46 because I was watching MSNBC. And if you take a knee for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, there is no doubt that that is murder. And I marched in four Black Lives Matter protests. But what made me sad is my daughters marched in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. And in Pittsburgh, the cops blocked my daughter off. They blocked all the young kids off on both sides of the bridge so they couldn't get off. And those officers were in combat gear. And then four Blackhawks went down on them. And they were innocent protesters. And it just gets me so upset. So I'm so glad you, you tell all the stories of everyone. What we're seeing in America with regard to the right to protest, or at least what we were seeing during the Bush administration, was something that I think is you know, very much like what is playing out right now in Belarus or in uh, Myanmar. It wasn't quite as bad as Myanmar. I mean, they killed, uh, what, 50, 60 people over the weekend, and they haven't been shooting protesters, but they have been assaulting protesters left and right. It's been going on here in Portland as well. So uh, Jessica, spot on, uh, and, and very well said. Thank you very much for the call. Donna in Palatine, Illinois. Hey, Donna, thanks for listening to WCPT. What's up? Hi, Tom. I uh, love you, man, but um, I, you said something that was incorrect earlier. 
you said that it was a policeman who was saying to George Floyd to to get up, get in the car, that kind of thing. That wasn't a policeman. Mm-hmm. That was the witness that broke down on the stand. I think his name was Charles McMillan. He was a I watched the cops say it. Man. He was the one witness that saw the entire thing. He saw them, uh, you know, take him, handcuff him, everything. And he was the one witness standing there while they're trying to put him into the car. And so he was... No, what I was talking about, Donna, was when when this cop was taunting him. He was saying, you know, come on, get up. And Floyd was sitting there with, you know, Chauvin's knee on his neck. Getting uh, up was not a policeman. It was McMillan who was saying that. He was saying that to him. He was saying, you can't win, you know. And then you hear Floyd saying back to him, I'm not trying to win. And he was saying, I think we're talking about two different circumstances with two different people, Donna. You may be right. I'll have to go back and look. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that you and I are talking past each other, that we're talking about two different things. Debbie in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. Hey, Debbie, what's up? Why? I've been listening to your show for quite a while, and there's not much said about what the common man can earn before he pays taxes. It's just so pathetic that we're only allowed $12,200, and then we have to start paying taxes. But somebody that makes $12 million or $20 million pays zero. Now, if yeah, it well, doesn't Donald change, Trump, Trump. I don't know how we're ever going to get ahead. How can anybody even making 20000 pay rent, pay for a car payment... And, and have anything left. Debbie, you make a compelling case for an overhaul of our federal income tax system, which is now running over a million pages with all the loopholes in it. I'm with you. I'm completely with you. Debbie, thank you. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. If you believe in democracy, I realize libertarians out there would answer no, don't believe in democracy. But if you believe in democracy, get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Because we've got to turn this ship around. We've been going the wrong direction for 40 years, and we've finally got an opportunity to make America, uh, dare I say it, great again? We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and people around you. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.